one of the more popular uh, Christian writers in the world in the last 20 years is a guy named Philip Yancey. He sold some 14 million of his books. And one of the more interesting titles of, of the books he has written is one he wrote called Church, Why Bother? And in it, he describes his background. Uh, Yancey grew up in the southern uh, U.S. in an extremely conservative uh, group of churches. Uh, they had some strengths, but also some profound weaknesses. And in, as he entered his 20s, he left the church. He left the faith for a period. Uh, and he says this about that period of his life. He, he said, the harshness of my church, the lack of humility, of any sense of mystery, uh, stunted my faith for many years. In short, Christianity kept me from Christ. And I've spent the rest of my life trying to climb back toward faith and church. And in his case, he's done a pretty good job of that. But of course, many people, if they don't have a positive experience of church as a young person, um, leave and never return. Uh, Studies reveal that the percentage of people attending churches in Western countries is not particularly high. Only about 15% of uh, the French, uh, 10% of people in the United Kingdom, uh, 10% of Canadians, about 26% of Americans, uh, 7% of Aussies attend church on a regular basis. Uh, The statistics on Asian church attendance are not so easily available, but they're uh, probably not much higher uh, than that. And yet, despite uh, low uh, church attendance in cultures around the world, a great uh, many people express a desire for God, uh, to know God, to experience God in their lives. So it would appear uh, that the organized Christian church isn't doing a particularly good job at helping people to encounter God to know God and experience him in their life. So in light of the facts, important, an important couple of questions that we can ask, or does God have any use for the church? Uh, does he desire to use it to help people to understand and connect with him? And I'd like to direct your thinking to several passages in the Bible for a few minutes that provide us some insight into these questions. One of the fascinating aspects of the Bible in its entirety uh, is that in its pages, uh, we see God progressively revealing himself to the human race. Uh, I once heard an analogy that the Bible is almost like opening a trap door on a basement in which, in in the dark room in which there's a light underneath, and as you open uh, the trap door, The light gradually filters into the room until it is uh, much more widely illuminated. And um, so we see this happening in different ways in the pages of the Bible. In the books of Genesis and Exodus, uh, he chooses an individual that we know of as Abraham, and he creates a nation 
through Abraham's descendants. So Genesis chapters 12 through 50 is all about him uh, selecting this individual and making himself known to this person, providing some promises, and then eventually shaping an embryonic nation through the descendants of Abraham. Exodus chapters uh, 19 through, you don't need to turn on the overheads just yet, just a moment. Exodus chapters 19 through 24, uh, we read that the plot thickens. Uh, God enters into a very unusual relationship with this group of people that's grown into an excess of two million um, that have just exited uh, slavery in Egypt. And in those chapters, God reveals himself to these people in a way that apparently has never occurred in the history of, the, of mankind. A very dramatic revelation of God to these people as they were gathered around this mountain in the southern uh, Sinai Peninsula. And then in Exodus, uh, uh, and, and he, he actually enters into this covenant relationship with them that's described in those chapters. Then in Exodus chapter 25 through 40, the last 15 chapters of the book of Exodus, God instructs the people, having entered into this relationship with him, to build a type of tent. Many of you are familiar with that, uh, this portion of the Old Testament, but it was a tent, a very specific dimensions that he provided for them, and type of fabric, and all the accoutrement that was to be used in the activities of uh, what they call the tabernacle or the tent of meeting, and the intent, his intention was to locate his presence or to reveal himself uh, significantly to the people through what happened at the tent of meeting. And uh, Exodus chapter 40 uh, is the end of that book, but in uh, that chapter, no less than seven times, uh, there is a repeated quotation and in, in biblical studies, it's always helpful to note when we see the same phrase repeated precisely the same over time in a short period of space, then God may be up to something and in trying to instruct us. But seven times the words they did just as the Lord commanded and finished the work is a phrase that's repeated there. And so... After they had done that, we read the following verses in chapter 40. Then the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the tabernacle was filled with the awesome glory of the Lord. So after they had done as he had instructed, he blessed them with this magnificent revelation of, of his ma- majesty, of his greatness, which no doubt was a very life-changing experience for everybody who was in the vicinity at that particular uh, evening. And then it says, Throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all Israel. And so he located uh, his visible presence in and around the tabernacle. 
And for about 450 years, God used uh, this particular structure as a primary location for revealing himself to the people. And there was a priesthood that was based at the facility. Uh, and part of their responsibility was educating people about the covenant relationship that uh, God had entered into with them as a nation and also helping them uh, make their offerings to God at the tent. Well, we read on. As the Old Testament unfolds, about four centuries later, uh, the people, the nation, uh, changed their government from a commonwealth of tribes uh, to a monarchy uh, with an appointed king. And the third king of this growing empire, as it matured and prospered and developed uh, politically and economically and militarily, The third king, Solomon, built a temple to replace the tabernacle. Of course, it had been used for a number of centuries, and so they wanted to build a facility that could be used in the hands of God for the same purposes, but that would more clearly reveal uh, his, his greatness. And so the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 6 and 7, described the dedication ceremony. Uh, that took place uh, after the construction of, of this facility was finished. And so we read um, during uh, Solomon, after it, it was finished and they were doing the dedication of the building, he began praying. And we read in chapter 7 of Second Chronicles, it says, When Solomon finished praying, fire flashed down from heaven and burned up the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not even enter the temple because uh, of the Lord, because the glorious presence of the Lord filled it. Very clear, unmistakable revelation of God to the people in in ways that uh, they would never forget. It says, when all the people of Israel saw the fire coming down and the glorious presence of the Lord filling the temple, they fell face down on the ground and worshipped and praised the Lord. This had a very uh, solemn effect. When, and in my observation, and when I've sent, glimpsed God in, in certain moments in my life more clearly than at others, and unmistakably, it's humbled me. You want to get quiet. Uh, you want to get reverential. Uh, but in this particular case, the display of God and his greatness was so great that they just prostrated themselves fully out on the ground in humility before the extraordinary demonstration of God among them. And so for the next 900 years, uh, God used this temple and then the one that was built to replace it as a primary location for revealing himself to his people, to his covenant people. And again, a priesthood was based at the facility to help people make their offerings and uh, to understand uh, their relationship with God. And then the birth of Jesus marked yet a new era uh, in God's program of revealing himself uh, to us. Um, Of course, um, 
We believe the, the uh, orthodox historical uh, definition of the meaning of Christ is that Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, came among us. And he revealed God to us in a way that was unprecedented and that certainly hasn't ever been repeated. Uh, John says in John chapter 1 of his gospel, he said, We beheld his glory full of grace and truth. He's saying that Jesus Christ uh, represented the qualities of a gracious, loving kindness and he spoke truth in a way that was so magnetizing and so life-changing that those, most of those who were exposed to it were never the same afterwards because Jesus was God come among us to reveal God to us in ways that we certainly could never know uh, otherwise. And in his teaching ministry, uh, Jesus at one point revealed and was teaching his disciples that they, they were in the temple courts at one point uh, as they were making a trip into Jerusalem. And, of course, they were very impressed. The temple at the time had been uh, expanded and developed under King Herod, who was a real kind of a real estate magnate. He was a construction guy, and they had invested massive sums of money to because he was trying to build favor with the Jews. And so the kingdom, the temple, was at its most magnificent and beautiful uh, during the time of Jesus in terms of size and, and um, all of the related uh, developments that Herod had added. But they were impressed, of course, and Jesus pointed out, he says, you know, uh, at one, at, there's going to come a point in time where every single stone in this, in this temple is going to be torn down. It's going to be destroyed. And that happened exactly as Jesus uh, said that it would in 70 A.D. when the Romans, after being uh, tired of all of the political resistance of the Israelites, came in, conquered the country, and destroyed the temple and scattered the Jewish people around the Mediterranean world. Um, but when Jesus said that the temple was going to be destroyed, probably that was unthinkable uh, to the disciples. Uh, the temple for so many centuries had been the location at which God had uh, centered uh, his activity. It was kind of like the epicenter of God's revelation of himself uh, to uh, the people of Israel and to people from who had become uh, God-seekers who traveled to Israel from Egypt and all across the southern European regions. But Jesus began introducing to them an entirely new idea, a new approach that God was going to use to break out of the confines of one geographic locality and begin revealing himself throughout the earth and revealing the truth that had been captured in the scriptures about him to a much, much broader audience. And we get a glimpse of that in Matthew chapter 16, uh, 17 and following, when he was saying to Peter, he said, Simon, son of John, you are blessed. Uh, I say to you that you are Peter, which, which is the Greek word Petros for rock or stone, it's interesting, Jesus often would give his disciples these nicknames, and he gave Peter one of rock. He says, upon this rock I will build my church. 
what he's doing here, of course, is he is describing how Peter is going to be a very central uh, leadership figure in the emergence of this new instrument that God is going to use to get the news about him to the four corners of the earth. Uh, The word church is the English uh, translation of the Greek word ekklesia. Many of you are probably familiar with that. It simply means an assembly or a gathering of people for a specific purpose. And Jesus begins introducing the disciples to the idea that he is beginning and he is beginning to and will continue to gather a much broader group of people. That his focus is expanding dramatically from just the Israelites into the global program that he is launching and that he is going to begin gathering a group of people from all over the earth who would in the aggregate themselves fulfill the role of the Old Testament temple in displaying God. And so we see this. The New Testament writers uh, discover this. They begin experiencing the beginning of it that's described in the book of the Acts. Uh, And they refer to the Christ followers in the world as his living temple. Um, So we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, We are the temple of the living God. And then again in Ephesians chapter 2, his letter to the Christians at Ephesus, he says, We are his house. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the cornerstone is Christ himself. Continues with that analogy. He says, you know, we, um, and as, as Christ followers, that those upon whom uh, God has had mercy, he's opened our eyes to the beauty of Christ. He's drawn us into a relationship with himself. He has built the, us together into a type of of metaphorical house. And he says, We who believe are carefully joined together, becoming a holy temple for the Lord, joined together as part of this dwelling where God lives uh, by his Spirit. And then in 1 Peter 2, it says, Christ, uh, Peter, uh, toward the end of his life, in writing the people he was writing to, says, Christ is the living cornerstone of God's temple, and now God is building you, he says, as living stones into his spiritual temple. This is so that you uh, can show others the goodness of God. So Peter is saying each one of us who have believed, everyone who is a Christ follower, is like a living stone, and he is constructing in his sovereignty and his providence a, a house, a, a community of people among whom he will live and through whom he intends to reveal himself to the earth, uh, specifically his goodness, uh, his, his kindness, his creativity, uh, his loving goodness uh, for people. And, of course, that uh, being true, it's an incredible privilege and it's also an awesome responsibility uh, to have uh, been drawn in. This, this is the news of the scripture this morning. 
you and I, as Christ followers, have been divinely selected and appointed to be a part of his global family, his community, and he intends to use us uh, as a group of people both to reveal himself to us in community and then through that community to fulfill his uh, program on the earth. And it's an amazing uh, privilege and an awesome responsibility. But when we uh, get into the nitty-gritty of how we do that, uh, things can get a little complicated, uh, uh, can't they? Um, How do we actually do this in an effective way? ongoing way in a specific location, like the northern part of Beijing and the Central Villa District. Well, our church has followed some of the insights uh, of an organization called Natural Church Development. Um, It's uh, an organization based in Europe that uh, some years ago conducted what appears to be the largest study of healthy, growing Uh, churches uh, worldwide. They administered a statistically validated survey to about a thousand congregations and their goal was to try to identify organizationally what the key characteristics or qualities uh, are of growing uh, healthy congregations worldwide. Congregations that appear to be displaying and illustrating the life and the truth that's described in the New Testament is, is, should be true of all uh, churches. And they came up with some very fascinating results. They produced several books uh, over the, the subsequent years that have described their, that research and the ongoing research. And uh, we've actually used their material in Capital Community for the last uh, several years. In fact, last fall, specifically, we selected a number of of people that represent different constituencies in our congregation. Uh, We've we've had uh, we're pretty multinational uh, group of people from over 40 countries that we know of uh, have come uh, through Capital Community over the last nine years, and um, so we made sure that we had a good cross-cultural representation and age, uh, single, married, um, and uh, different types of of backgrounds, Asian, uh, Western, and and so forth. And uh, then we submitted that information to um, the organization, and they came back with a, it's it's sort of like a uh, checkup report. It's just, it's kind of like going for a checkup when you get the biomarkers, you know, they do all this blood work on you, and you come back and you see what your triglycerides are, and Good and bad cholesterol and so on. So it's a very, it's a very interesting uh, process um, that uh, we uh, underwent with them. But they identified eight characteristic qualities of growing congregations worldwide. And very, very briefly, I just mentioned uh, eight of them. Of course, one is loving relationships. In a true, vital, healthy Christian congregation that is somewhat representative of the teaching of the scripture, there is going to be a genuine connection in which people really care about each other. They are really becoming a part of each other's lives. They are supporting and encouraging and caring for each other in different ways. And, of course, that has a magnetizing influence on others because everybody 
desires those kinds of relationships. And when they see that model, they want to be a part of it just naturally. So churches who tend to have these kinds of relationships tend to grow. But also, uh, secondly, a passionate spirituality. That is, there is at least a core of people uh, in the church who have a genuine passion uh, for knowing God, uh, that they, they're all in. They really are seeking God and they're seeking the, the well-being of the people and, uh, and seeking God's uh, presence in, in their church. Inspiring worship service, uh, empowering leadership. Growing churches tend to have a leadership and board and various staff uh, that um, they are more interested in empowering the people in the congregation than exerting or, a, or uh, authority of some sort. It is, it's never about the board, a church. It's never about the staff. It's not even about the people. Ultimately, the church should be about Christ. And if everybody's on the same page on that, then uh, the leadership of the church should be recruiting and mobilizing and energizing people to serve uh, throughout the congregation. Uh, Gift-based ministry, these are churches that help the individuals identify their particular spiritual gifts, effective structures. This is just organizational efficiency and effectiveness. Once people understand their gifts, and they sense there is a welcome and open environment for people using their gifts. They uh, engage the people in using their gifts to help the, the church grow and mature. Healthy small groups and need-oriented evangelism. I've got a slide for you, if you can see it uh, there. But um, they, they illustrate these stakes of this barrel although there's more than eight on this particular uh, diagram, the idea that they say each of these eight quality characteristics are like a stave in a barrel, and a church can only grow and will only be healthy to the, to the height of any one or the level of strength of any one of these particular qualities. Now, the, the water level only rises to the point of the weakest a link, and so part of their ministry is to help help people identify uh, churches identify uh, their strengths, but also their weaknesses, so they can devote specific attention to growing and developing in the area of their weaknesses. And we have done that, and uh, are making every effort to to be as as effective and uh, fruitful as we can be. Well, as people are coming back over the next. Um, Three, four weeks, uh, probably, if, if uh, uh, the uh, attendance patterns uh, continue, there will be a pretty significant, sizable number of us who are joining together uh, every Sunday in this facility. And our goal, uh, ultimately, is to please God. Uh, it is, uh, as Rick Warren said in his best-selling book, um, uh, The pur- uh, uh, Purpose uh, filled life or whatever the, <laughs> I've lost the name of it for, uh, for purpose driven life. Yeah. 40 million copies. It's the, uh, the book that was a wide, most widely published and purchased book, uh, nonfiction book, apparently in public history for some 40 million copies. The first statement he says 
in the book, uh, which is interesting for a book that sold so widely. The first four words are, it's not about you. When we become a part of a true and living, vital organism that is attempting to uh, experience the reality of God and then to display it in the community, the one thing that we all need to be sold out on is it's not about us. It's about uh, Christ. And that's easier uh, to say than to actually do uh, because if you're like me in a morning like this morning, uh, it's very hot in this room. <laughs> Sometimes the volume of the music was a little loud for my taste. That one friend had the earplugs in in the back. Um, Sometimes with this location and these uh, facility, this particular facility, given the political climate of China, it's a little unstable. Uh, we have to face challenges of different kinds in terms of uh, the, uh, our relationships with the authorities in the, in the area and, and also with just managing our relationship with the, the manager. Lots and lots of challenges uh, to becoming a group of people that actually illustrate the beauty and the power of the biblical description of the church. But that's what we want. Because if you and I can glimpse even the dimmest revelation of God's greatness and magnificence among us this year, or at any time, it is a life-changing experience, a renewing and an empowering experience that will change us. It will change our marriages. It will change our families. It will change our relationship with our children. And it will enable us to be who God wants us to be in this community in Beijing. And so we will continue exploring some of these character quality qualities and uh, how we can hopefully work together this year to become such a group. Let's pray together.